traveling from Canada to, to America and how amazing it is how you can see like how one country is mitigating COVID and the other country is like absolutely just running amok with it. We're like in Canada, there's like, you know, even in Toronto, there's like no one in the airport. Everyone is like heavily masked and everyone's like very serious about it. And the moment you fly into America, everyone's like, you know, taking their mask off for frivolous reasons. Even the like TSA people, they're like, you know, just take your mask off. It doesn't matter. And then like the airport is just teeming. Like like even even in DTW in, in Detroit, like I was saying, um, people are traveling as if as if, you know, there's nothing happening right now. <laughs> what what corona i can just imagine when you're flying to the united states after you cross over and enter u.s airspace to come on the announcement all right you've now entered u.s airspace you can remove your mask <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no actually i was thinking about this you, you'll like this um when i was flying out of madison you know there was there was like five people in the airport total it seemed and like two people flying me and one other dude and okay. you know, you you you've always said that there's something in airports that just makes everyone's IQ lower, like you know, 15 points or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah I found it hilarious I that I could be in this airport that was completely empty except for one other passenger, and he was being a fucking idiot in the TSA in the security line. Like it was unbelievable what this guy was doing. <laughs> he was he. It's like he had a checklist to do everything wrong, and even the TSA agent was like getting really frustrated. It was an, it was unbelievable. There was two people flying, and the other person was being a total moron. Yeah, you know, I always thought TSA should have two lines for like normal people, and then people who have literally never been to an airport before. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, no, this guy had like four like big water bottles. <laughs> yeah, like his entire like, you know, full-size toiletry bags. So one of the um so one of the pieces of inquiry I've gotten from listeners, which I think is is interesting and funny and we might as well entertain it, is people are pretty curious how and why we met. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, so it's not the most extravagant story, but it's basically, you know, so we both were doing our undergrad together at IU, Indiana University, Jacob School of Music, <laughs> in beautiful Bloomington, Indiana. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. No, it's a beautiful town. It's great. Um, yeah. But yeah, basically it came down to, I we had overlapped before. We were maybe at like a party together or we had like, we had some mutual friends. So we like crossed each other in the hallways a few times and in the dorm lobbies, you know, here and there. Yeah. But it eventually turned out we were at the, at the Hoosier Cafe. <laughs> the, oh yeah. The Hoosier Cafe at Reed Hall, which was one of the like music major dorms where all the music majors live because it was right across the street from the music school, which by the way, that led to such terrible habits being formed where you got used to waking up for your class 10 minutes before it started and you'd be there like two minutes early because you just walk across the street. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but basically we bumped into each other in the cafe and we just said hi. And yeah, it was like some Saturday morning and we, you know, we were both gra- grabbing coffee around 10 o'clock and we decided to sit down and chat for a bit. And like, oh, cool. You seem interesting. You seem cool. This is fun. We were both kind of thinking the same thing, I think. And then we decided, all right, well, we're here at the cafe. Let's just grab some lunch. So we grabbed lunch and sat right back down where we were. And then we talked for a good six hours. So. Yeah. And they're like, okay, we should probably just grab dinner while we're at it. <laughs> and we grabbed dinner and 
kept talking more and more until they eventually kicked us out. And so we just spent 12 straight hours talking to each other more or less. And, and there you have it. And that was it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. As keep in mind, by the way, you know, this food, quote unquote food that we were eating, you know, this food, if you just left it on the floor, it would be untouched by any sort of organism for years because there is nothing inside this food that could be considered nutritious or nutrient or like an organic product. So, you know, I don't know how we like sustained ourselves throughout all of this, but yeah we, yeah, we were there. We were there for a long time. Like, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we did not leave that one table at that, at that cafe yeah. for, for a day, basically. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I think we both were realizing, huh, like here's, here's someone else who in music school, as with any school, as with society, as with life, there are people who are curious and there's people who aren't. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, I think we both kind of realized, oh, here's someone who's curious about music and also wants to figure out how the world works. And we're all trying to do this. I'm trying to do the same thing. So yeah. And um... yeah. Also, like you know, I mean, conversation is kind of a, a dying art. I think uh, <laughs> there there are very few people who who are content to sort of just ruin a day by talking. I've gotten also some inquiry and questions about where our uh, podcast title came from, and I don't think we've ever addressed it. And I don't know if we were ever going to, but yeah, why not? <laughs> we, we we may as well. Um, yeah, the, it's it's from the opening. It, it's it's a riff on the opening to um, the importance of being earnest, which is a play by Oscar Wilde. Um, I, I I'm a huge um, lover of of all things Wilde, and um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, in the in the opening to to the importance of being earnest. Um, um, the main character is, is he's a sort of, you know, wealthy bachelor and he's playing um, piano in his, in his London flat. He's, he's playing the piano and um, it's a, the implication is that it's, he's playing it pretty badly. Um, and his butler, his butler, um, you know, he discreetly slides into the room and, and the main character, Algon, he, he says, um, you know, did you hear what I was just playing? And the butler says, I didn't think it polite to listen. And there you go. You know, and yeah, so I, I think that's a wonderful line and, and kind of shows um, a lot of the, the sort of reserve and the wit and the irony of, of, the, of the Irish wit. And for that matter, you know, the, the English wit as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, sure, sure. And I think, too, the, um, you know, the charter, <laughs> the charter of this podcast is basically it's just two dudes talking. Right. And yeah. And I. You know, podcasts come in all sorts of shapes and forms and styles. And I love all sorts of different podcasts that I listen to a lot. And some are very interview centric. Some are very story centric. Some are very presentation like centric. But some of the podcasts I love the most are just two dudes talking. And it's, sometimes it's it's a case where I almost don't even care what the topic is if the two people are just really interesting and fun to listen to and very curious and ask curious questions, I absolutely love it. So um, when we were starting and proposing this podcast, yeah, we kind of were both of the same, same line of logic that it would just be two dudes talking and we just happen to be talking about classical music. Yeah. And you know, you guys, if you, if you want, if you will do us the honor 
um, will be listening in. But you know, we we talk like this all yeah. the time anyway. So yeah, right. um, you know, you really are just listening in, and yeah, um, yeah, right. Almost as if you're everyone is just eavesdropping on yeah on a, yeah on a conversation, which is the way we want it. Yeah, we we sort of think of this like we're we're sort of you know sitting at the bar having our conversation and. You know, the listener is just the person who's, you know, the bar's still over. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> love it. Love it. Love it. Great. So, yeah, let's dive into some true follow-up. Um, we had some some things we wanted to plug and pitch and remind people about. Yeah, yeah. Want to kick it off? Sure. So, yeah, um, we have some real housekeeping items that we've been ignoring. Um Forgetting about forgetting. for a few episodes <laughs> yeah. now. Yeah. Ignoring is giving us way too much credit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, one of the things, I, I don't know, I don't remember if, if we've actually said this on the show, but, um, you know, we, we, do, we, do get, we do get some feedback, like, privately from people who are listening. And, you know, if, if anyone's listening, um, uh, you know, I, I, do, I do urge you to... Um, to find at impolite listen on Twitter, um, or at impolite listen as well on on Instagram, and we'll put links to both of those in the show notes. Um, you know, if you if you if you give us feedback there, you know that that would be greatly greatly appreciated. Or like you know you know in the I'm sure you know you can leave a review or a comment in the Apple Podcast thing or whatever. I'm not sure how that works, but um, you know yeah we 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 love to hear from 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 listeners. So if you want to. If you have any questions or uh, comments, concerns, feedback generally, um, you hate the way one of us sounds. Uh, yeah, yeah you, you're right. You know, you need to get that off your chest. You know, those are where you can leave that feedback. And, and yeah, we, we do love hearing from you. So, do you want to add anything? Absolutely, to that? absolutely. Yeah, I mean, not too much actually, but um, we welcome all constructive and deconstructive criticism (laughs) (laughs) and uh yeah and yeah yeah uh, this does not need to be constructive criticism by the way by all means (laughs) drop us a line and tell us to go um yeah so (laughs) so there's that (laughs) also check us out on our website our website impolite to listen.com that is what it is right yeah 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 yeah. impolite to listen.com yeah Implantlisten.com. Yeah, as you yeah. know, I manage that part of it. Um, <laughs> it is the plan. We will be having a, a bleep counter um, that we're going we're gonna to put on there. Yeah. I, I'm not sure how that what I just said will work, but that might have to be one long bleep for the whole phrase. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if we're going to end up cutting that part. You just talk. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, it might just be one long bleep. Yeah. 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 We'll see. We'll see. We should talk a little bit about Spotify. Oh, yeah, yeah. So... Two things. The first thing is Spotify now supports show notes. Yeah. Which is awesome. I think Michelle Obama was like, yo, Spotify. Yeah. <laughs> if I'd be launching a podcast on this show. <laughs> I think between <laughs> Michelle Obama Spotify. and Joe Rogan, I think Spotify finally yeah. got yeah. their act together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, so basically, so when we talk about show notes, all the links, basically any point, any anything we talk about in the show, we always add a link or something something uh relevant to it in the show notes uh if you're curious to learn more about it so now for our our spotify listeners which our metrics do show that's a that is a sizable portion you're in luck now your player supports show notes so enjoy and oh and also we do have some easter eggs that we've planted throughout the show notes and some listeners have pointed them out and have found them so 
Anyways, just playing that seed there. Yeah. <laughs> Leaving it there, do, it, do with it what you will. Yeah. And we also have a Spotify playlist that we have a lot of fun putting together. Um, Shreeder, you want to? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we've talked about this before, but I think it bears repeating. Um, you know, it's we kind of we link to all the things that we talk about um, on in the show notes. But I think you know it's cool to have like a a sort of bespoke playlist on Spotify, just sort of um, you know a lot of the stuff that we talk about, and even stuff that we don't necessarily explicitly talk about on the show, but. Um, it's sort of ha- like the music has to do with the topic that we're that we've talked about on the latest episode. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll like throw that up there on the playlist. And um, uh, yeah, if you if you have a Spotify account, I think that's a that's a you know, like I said before. I mean, I, I had a lot of fun listening to it. So so I think I think, yeah, the, I think the listeners will too. And um, and you know, I, I think we have a fair amount of listeners um, from from what I hear who um, who are not super into classical music and are, and are trying to get more into it. So, um, yeah, you know, yeah. to, to those listeners, I, I would say, you know, um, find your way over to the Spotify playlist if you can. If you have a Spotify account, um, you know, th- there's going to be, like, you know, hopefully whenever, we, if, we, if I can remember to update it, um, whenever we <laughs> drop an episode, there will be a, a bunch of new music on there. And, um, yeah, it'll be, it's great. It's good fun. Yeah, no, I think that's cool too, right? It's a lot of music that we talked about in the most recent episode is up there and related music and maybe some surprises too. So, so yeah, I have a lot of fun listening to it. Um, uh, I always, yeah, I always wait anxiously to see what you, what you decide to throw on there and stuff. So, so yeah, that's always a lot of fun. And I I think Um, I actually, you know, um, I, I, I think I introduced you to Christili playing Bach, right? Or have you heard it yeah, before? Yeah, that's right. So I'm, I'm glad yeah, to have done I, that because it's not every day that I get to show Chris something that he doesn't know about. Usually it's the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It goes it goes both ways. It goes both ways. Um, I listened to that for probably a week straight. Oh, yeah? Awesome. <laughs> yeah, awesome. I mean, just, uh, yeah, just the Bach being played on mandolin that we talked about uh, one or two episodes ago. Yeah, I just adored it. I thought it was so beautiful and so incredible. And and yeah yeah fantastic I'm, I'm so, so thanks for I'm that so glad. I'm so glad um yeah when he when he released yeah. that it blew my mind also another piece um follow-up we wanted to mention is uh i don't know how we want to say this but i i, I don't want this to be a campaign ad uh <laughs> but because <laughs> lord knows we're gonna have a bunch of those soon <laughs> um but yeah, um, tell your friends about us. Um, you know, we're we're growing internationally and stuff. We have listeners in Israel and Brazil, Australia. We have listeners Czech in Republic. Japan. Czech I almost Republic, said Austria. Czechoslovakia. <laughs> God, you're pulling a baby. Boomer. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have listeners in Austria too. Yeah. Yeah, the ghost of Beethoven is there. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so um, we have yeah Israel. Uh, we have. Yeah, a few other countries in Asia. We have a handful in Japan. Yeah. Um, Australia is surprisingly Australia is surprisingly um, strong. Like we have we have like a yeah. yeah we have a solid like Australian contingency that are like there on day one when we drop an episode. Yeah, <laughs> I want to yeah. know who they are. Seriously, so, like, if you're yeah, listening yeah. right now, reach out to us. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. yeah, so thank you to our Australian listeners. Yeah, yeah we, that's awesome. We, yeah, we love um, you over in Australia, by the way. I'm Indian, so you know nothing but respect. And a healthy rivalry between our cricket teams. Um, <laughs> yeah, when the Commonwealth Games rolls around, yeah, right? Yeah. You know, I, I play with a guitarist whose name is Steve Waugh, so, you know, uh, that, that, should, um, that, that should be a, a good Easter egg to all the Australians out there who are listening. 
he's a he's a cricketing legend over there. Oh, right on. Yeah. Oh, is, is he yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know he played cricket. No, no, no. Uh, the guitar, yeah, there's, there's a guy named Steve Waugh who, who is a cricketer um, who used to be um, uh, the captain of the Australian national team, and he was like... Oh, really? He was, he was okay. just brilliant, and he's like a legend over there. And I remember when, when my guitarist, whose name is also Steve Waugh, he, gotcha. he hit me up, and I remember like, you know, it was early in the morning that I got his email, and I checked my phone, and I had like an unread email from Steve Waugh, and I had to like do like a triple take. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> Can I fly you out to Sydney for a dinner? And <laughs> <laughs> so thank you to all of our international listeners. I mean, we love our American listeners too. Um, yeah. Uh, we promise, but but the, but yeah, the no, point um, is, yeah. If you if you you know we 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 really appreciate everyone who who you know downloads, subscribes, and takes a listen to our show. And if you find the show interesting or funny or valuable, or you hate us so much that you need to tell someone about how much you hate us, all of the above, we'll take it. You know, tell your friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. We don't have any listeners in Africa yet. So, oh man, I, I will say that I'm. We have listeners on every continent um, except Africa. So, depends if you count Antarctica continent. Um, oh yeah, we don't yeah. have anyone listening. That would be, dude. Yeah. I, that would Mi- be so. Uh, that would be mission accomplished <laughs> in my life if someone was listening from like McMurdo Station or something. That <laughs> yeah, would be right. so <laughs> dope. <laughs> some some French research base, yeah. and, and, and um, that'd be awesome. What else? Anything else? Um, yeah. yeah, anything else for follow-up? This is, this is um, clearly why we've forgotten all this housekeeping. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're showing you how professional we are here. Um, um, the Impolite to Listen Book Club. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> the Impolite to Read. Um, yeah. Um, I, yeah, um, there's this book called Absolutely on Music, which is um, a bunch of conversations between Haruki Murakami, the Japanese novelist and author, same thing, I don't know why I said that, and, uh, and Seiji Ozawa, the Japanese conductor and musician. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, the, these, are, these are brilliant. I remember I read, I read this a, a couple of years ago, but I haven't, haven't um, I need to like refresh myself. But Chris, you just recently got yourself a copy of this, right? Yeah, um, on your recommendation, because it is on the Impolite to Listen bookshelf. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's our, our banner picture on our Twitter profile, I believe, and yeah. our Facebook page. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah it's <laughs> so I saw that, and I've always known about this book, and I've always really respected and admired um, the great conductor, C.G. Ozawa, who was conductor of the Boston Symphony for years and years and years, and was a pupil and protege of Leonard Bernstein, who took him under his wing and taught him everything he knew. And before that, he was conductor of the San Francisco Symphony for a handful of years. Before that, uh, he got a start as conductor of the Toronto Symphony, which I think is interesting. He is conducted in some of the greatest cities on the planet. Yeah, no, he's conducted in some A-plus cities. (laughs) A-plus cities. I wholeheartedly endorse Boston, San Francisco, and Toronto. Um, Yeah. So, anyways, yeah, um, this book, uh, yeah, I had known about it for a while, and... I asked you about it, uh, and you said you really loved it. I really like the format of the book. It's just a bunch of Q and A's, you know, um, which I always think is very telling when um, when an author, a an educator, professor, researcher, uh, intellectual has a Q and A book published or a transcription of a post lecture Q and A session. I always find that you learn a lot in those about the subject, but also the person. So, 
Yeah. So anyways, yeah, that's why I was pretty curious about this book and got it. And we thought, hey, why, why not tell the listeners about it? Yeah. So yeah, we'll, we'll, put, a, we'll put a link to, to you know, um, get this on Amazon or Kindle or whatever you do. And um, yeah, if you, if you want to do a bit of homework and read the book along with us, I'll be rereading it. Um, you know, I don't. I don't think either of us really love deadlines or homework. So there's no te- there's no telling when this will happen, but we will at some point in the near future um, discuss this book absolutely on music. But you know, even if it weren't for that, if anyone's interested in in music, if whether they're professional musicians or you know amateur musicians or complete lay people, um, I think this is a fascinating book. And yeah, hmm. um, but it, it, you know, this is always interesting when uh, you know conversations happen between someone who is um, a, a complete expert in a field and someone else who is a complete expert in another field and an amateur in the first field. That's a very mm-hmm. tortured way of, of saying it, but both Ozawa yeah. and Murakami are, are world-class at what they do, you know, yeah. music and writing. But Murakami is also really into music, and in all of his novels there's, there's, a, you know, there's a lot of references to music and talking about music and just it's, it's clear the way that he writes about music that he's someone who, who cares deeply about the subject um, but in a non-professional way so I think you know in this that that area is where the, you know you can really strike gold in a conversation right so yeah I love it I love it yeah and I believe this Q&A so this these series of interviews that not interviews the series of conversations that happens between them I believe it was when Seiji Ozawa, who is still alive, but when he was diagnosed with throat or esophagus cancer. I think the latter, but I could be wrong. Okay, yeah, yeah it's one of those. And basically, so, I mean, he, he's obviously uh, survived it. He's still alive and doing stuff. But, yeah, he basically he had to take a lot of time off from his busy musical life at, with the Boston Symphony and the Boston music scene. And even after he retired from the symphony, all the stuff he was doing. Anyway, he had to take a bunch of time off and had a lot of time where he would just be sitting around, uh, you know, <laughs> recovering from cancer. So that's that's how this book came to be, which I think is kind of cool. It was kind of a forced forced uh, window that would have otherwise not occurred. Of course, it occurred for a very bad reason. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's kind of cool that they spun that and then use it as an opportunity to, to have a series of very fascinating conversations yeah do you have anything else on on, what else is on your mind these days what else is on my mind these days uh let's see um the chopin piano competition has been canceled it was going to be this fall in october slash november so i I think i was announced a while ago i had just learned about though and it's it's every five years so it's a big it's a big deal that they cancel it yeah um that is a shame. Um, yeah, I mean the Chopin competition. Um, that is that is that. Um, I think Polini won that, right? Polini has won that. Um, Martha Argerich, I believe, won it. Yeah. Uh, basically, I mean all the pretty <laughs> much anyone has anyone. Think so. Yeah, I was actually looking at the Wikipedia article. So yeah, so for those who who don't know, the Chopin piano competition is arguably and kind of not arguably like the biggest piano competition in the world. And the winner gets a prize of money and a record contract, but it's sort of a joke because, like the winner, it, it, they're already like one of the greats. If you win it, I mean, you're not. The winner has never just come out of nowhere. It's yeah. it's it's such a big competition, and to get invited to even participate in it, 
you have to be already a fairly big name. Yeah, but it's funny when you look down um, the list. You know, it's held every five years in, in Poland. And when you look down the list on Wikipedia, everybody that has won it for the past however many decades, uh, yeah, you've recognized most of the names. Um, one thing that surprised me, what did, here, I, you know, I have to pull it up right now, actually, because this is something I kind of wanted to talk about, actually. Um, yeah. Let's see, Chopin piano competition winners. Yeah, so it goes back to 1927. Okay, so some of these guys in 1927 I have not heard of. <laughs> I don't know who Lev Oberin was. Or Oh, actually, I do, I do know oh. him. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. I am not aware. Um, I like how, so it started in 1927. 1927, we have, the winner was Lev Oberlin. Uh, Oberlin? No. Oberlin? Ah, I can't pronounce it. Um, Alexandra Uniski, uh, Yakov Zak, uh, 1942, no competition due to the occupation of Poland. <laughs> <laughs> wow, man. Uh, that's, uh, I wonder if it's going to say next to 2020, canceled due to coronavirus. I mean, it probably, yeah. Well, it already says on Wikipedia, yeah, postponed to 2021 due to COVID-19. Yeah. says all the way down here. But yeah, so then in, um, so in like uh, 1960, yeah, that's when we have Maurizio Polini. Then 65 was Martha Argerich. Then 1970 was Garrick Olson. 1975 was Christian Zimmerman. These are a lot of familiar names. And also some of the second place winners, like 1955, Vladimir Ashkenazi won second place. Uh, Mitsuko Uchida, who's one of my favorite pianists. She's phenomenal. She won second place in 1970 to Garrick Olson. Um, I thought Daniel Barenboim was on here somewhere. Maybe he's not. No, he's not. Oh, that's, that's interesting. Hmm. Maybe it's some other big competition you're thinking of. Could be. Maybe it was the Tchaikovsky competition. Yeah. Um, but anyway, no, I kind of wanted to talk about Daniel Barenboim, actually. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I just stumbled across a video on YouTube that I really liked. And so Daniel Barenboim is one of the legendary, iconic pianists and conductors still alive today. Uh, ever since I was a younger piano student I, I mean I loved his cycle of recording all the Beethoven sonatas and such he was I'm worried to use the word prodigy and no I don't think he was a prodigy because I think that's almost more of an insult no he <laughs> worked so hard to get yeah, his talent yeah. and he worked hard to become the incredible artist he is and the first time you hear him speak he has the funkiest accent right because yeah, yeah. he's is or he's Jewish his parents were Israeli but he was born and grew up in Argentina Mm-hmm. So and then eventually moved to Israel, I believe, when he was a he was a teenager or something. And and of course, he's the classic speaks seven languages sort of person. Yeah. Deal. And and so he's been an international pianist. Uh, I mean, yeah, one of the great pianists of the world for decades and decades now. And he was also a very prolific conductor. He was conductor and music director of the Chicago Symphony throughout the '90s. Nowadays, he's what conductor of Staatskapelle Berlin. It's like the Berlin yeah. Opera, and I think either Staatskapelle Berlin or Staatskapelle Dresden. I think Berlin yeah, or both. Yeah, or maybe, maybe both. Knowing him, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he maintains the busiest calendar. Of, it's unreal, man. Spe- yeah. Speaking of traveling and yeah. being a musician, I think there's there's been two sixty minutes um, interviews and programs on Daniel Barenboim. One was like two years ago, and the other one was like twenty years ago, and. Yeah, in both times, I mean, he's just exhausting to keep up with because he'll have a piano performance recital in New York. Then he's conducting an opera in Milan at La Scala Opera House. Then he's 
you know, leading a masterclass series in London, and then he flies home to do a lecture in Argentina for a little bit. And this is all in like the same week too. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know he, how he does. He's it. really one of those people who who boggles the mind. Yeah. No. He he's uh he's really something. Um. But anyway, so. Uh, so I know all of his, no, I'm probably not all of his, he's recorded so much, but I know a lot of his classical recordings, um, his master classes, uh, he gave a master class series back in the 90s in Chicago with some of the great young pianists of that era, including Long Long and, and folks. And yeah, a great master class series on the Beethoven sonatas, which is really, really great. And I actually really do, hi- I usually don't recommend master classes for someone like new-ish to classical music. But Barenboim is such a great educator and communicator of music that even even if you know you don't know all the if you're not so in the weeds with classical music, you'll certainly enjoy and get a lot out of his master classes and him teaching younger kids. Yeah, it's they're really phenomenal. You've seen them, I yeah, think, right? yeah, a, yeah, yeah, a while ago. I need to I need to watch them again. I mean, these are evergreen master classes, really. That's it. Beethoven remains constantly contemporary. This music really deals with the completeness and the innermost nature of the human condition. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, needless to say, if you are a musician, regardless of whether you play piano or not, if you are a musician, these are totally indispensable, regardless of what instrument you play. Um, probably you have something to do with Beethoven, and I think <laughs> any study of Beethoven is, uh, you know, you, you, should, you re- really can learn a lot just by, um, by hearing these young musicians play and hearing him play and hearing him talk about it. But um, do, do, you, yeah. do you have an example off the top of your head um, of something that he talks about where even a non-musician can, can you know, take away something from? Sure. So it's interesting. I mean, to go off your point first, right, it's, I mean, he's not teaching amateurs. These are very good young pianists. So, so he's, they're not really talking about piano technique because these kids have worked so They have great piano technique. That's not the problem. What they're talking about is Beethoven and how to play the style of, of music, uh, the sonata from the middle late period of Beethoven and why he wrote this note in this measure and you know how you know, you know I mean the notes on the page are just instructions but it's not all information that you need to play it well you know there's an art artistic part that's placed on the performer and the interpreter so it's about how to it, it's a semester class very much on that side of things which all great master classes should be I, I think um, mm-hmm. So because of that, that's why I, I, I double down on your statement that no matter what instrument you play, even if you don't play classical, if you play jazz, bluegrass, anything folk, you can get a lot out of these because it's them trying to answer the question, how do we perform this piece of music in a, in a, in a valid and, I don't know, where to use these words, but yeah, it's valid, interesting, and relevant way. It's really a masterclass on. I mean, uh, sorry, I want to get to to your answer to my question, but just a side note on your side note. Yeah. Um, the author, the the sorry, the writer um, Vladimir Nabokov. He he, I think in one of his um, lectures on literature, so called, 
um, he has a lecture on what makes a good reader, what makes like a, an artistic reader. And, and he, he sort of lays out um, how like the, the writer writing something is only, he, he imagines it as a sort of hill or like a mountain. And the writer's writing of the thing is only the journey of one man up or woman or whatever up one side of the mountain and and the reader really needs to make the journey up the other side of the mountain so that the writer and the reader can meet at the summit and and embrace in sort of mutual knowledge and artistry but you know he Mm -hmm. makes it very clear there's at least half or about half of the artistic burden of of a novel is placed on the reader too and i think it's it's this it's even more this way with music because um you know even if you don't read uh, like Lolita say even if you don't read Lolita um, the book still exists and um, you know you don't really need to like meet Nabokov halfway to to make that book exist but you know you without your playing of Beethoven in the room that you're in Beethoven does not exist so you know I would say even more Mm -hmm. than half of the artistic burden is placed on the performer to actually make art out of you know what are really just sort of ink blots on a page right right Very well put. Very well put. Yeah. And so, so to a side note on, no, no, no. <laughs> we'll get back to that. <laughs> yeah. um, By the way, this is why I'm, we spent like 12 hours at the Hoosier Cafe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, word. Yeah. Um, yeah. We did not leave that one cafe for more than half of a, of a 24 hour period. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm trying to think. Yeah, a good example, I guess a little on the technical side, but one that I know you and I, I think, agree with because we've talked about this before. And it's the importance of tempo and consistency of speed and tempo when you're playing Beethoven. And it is one of the things that does drive me crazy when I hear Beethoven interpretations I don't like. <laughs> and Glenn Gould says this too in many of his um, interviews and lectures. He says, you know, if there's a grounding rule with playing Beethoven and... Barenboin and Gould kind of say a similar thing, but it's like, you know, usually you don't want to have these firm rules when you're approaching music or a style or a composer. The one quasi-exception, though, at least entertain it, and if you don't agree with it, have a good reason why you don't agree with it, is a consistency of tempo, Mm -hmm. right? And Beethoven loved tempo. Um, The metronome was invented by a friend of his, right? Um, so oh, we yeah. love the metronome. Right? Yeah, and actually, there's a there's a um, I I believe I don't know if if anyone knows this to be true, but I think the second movement, maybe the third movement of Beethoven Eight, is meant to be a joke on the metronome. Oh, is it yeah. really? <laughs> we'll put a clip here, but yeah. Okay, yeah. interesting, interesting. Yeah. Sorry, go on. Yeah, no, I mean, I was just performing, well, performance got canceled, but I was just rehearsing Beethoven 7 with an orchestra I play in, in, in the city. What's funny about Beethoven 7, I mean, I, I hadn't ever played that trumpet part before, so I know the piece, but I hadn't played it. And yeah, it's funny, like, he has very specific <laughs> metronome markings, like, you know, this movement 76 beats per minute, or like, one's maybe like 68 beats per minute for this other movement and yeah so he had very precise instructions and yeah and it's the relationship between the between the tempo markings that's the most important yeah 
yeah the delta or the yeah yeah, the, yeah and so i i think uh, i forget which of this mass class series he 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 gives uh i forget which student it was in particular but they were talking about tempo and how it might have been long long he was giving maybe a bit more space um in between you know to arrest for what he thought and probably had a good reason for being an artistic judgment call which when you're performing music you're making these all the time because the opposite is true too if you just play everything mathematically perfect it'll sound like you're a computer yeah right and, and computers can play better than you can so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you know Barenboim kind of says yeah and other composers i would not have a problem with with what you did composers just after beethoven like chopin or Liszt, that would have been fine composers just before beethoven like mozart and haydn that would have been fine too but for this piece and this composer, we're going to lessen the effect of this modulation in the next measure if we don't keep this measure of rest, this measure of silence perfectly in time with what we just played and established is the tempo we're going to have for this movement. It's things like that. It's things like that. That's it. I think once you hit the fortissimo, you must have a tempo there. You can play the upbeat if you want a little free. But once you get this is also a rhythmical structure. I don't think uh, you can go. Uh, you can go a little. Keep the tempo now. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm not trying to uh, put you in a straight yeah. jacket, but yeah, I'm yeah. trying to remind you of what the pulse is that you uh, created. Mm -hmm. you, if you don't have strictness with syncopations, mm -hmm. the syncopations look their, uh, lose their nature. The syncopation mm -hmm. is a syncopation in relation to the rhythm. And therefore, if, if that is free, the syncopation loses its strength. And I think there's a, a similar thing. Yeah, there's a, I think it's with the French student he's working with, I forget his name. They also talk about tempo a lot from one of Beethoven's piano sonatas. And, and Barenboim points out, it's like, okay, I just have to ask you, why are you playing this, you know, at this kind of rushy tempo that goes a little bit back and forth and doesn't really remain consistent like a metronome? Um, and the French student just goes, well, I just like it better this way. <laughs> and, and the audience laughs. And Barenboim goes, you know, that's great. But I'm sorry, that's not good enough. Right? Yeah. He said, if you had said, if you had told me, I've thought about it, I've analyzed it, I believe we, we can deepen the impact of the main motive and theme of this movement and how it evolves by playing this part faster and this part slower. If you came back to me and told me that, I think <laughs> Baron Boyne says, I would have to say to you, chapeau. <laughs> like, <laughs> like <laughs> Like, I may not agree with you, but you have thought about it and you have a strong opinion on it and you've defended it. Okay. Yeah. This is your interpretation after all. You can play it that way. Yeah. Um, I, it, and so, put it in other words, yeah. I just like it that way is the end of your, of your statement, not the, not the beginning and certainly not the <laughs> only thing. It has to, it has to, if you're going to say something like that, that, that has to come at the end of um, a series of justifications. Yeah, um, right, right. Yeah, so, but anyway, um, yeah, this is such a brilliant, brilliant masterclass series. And, and kind of interjuxtaposed is Beethoven, Beethoven, Barenboim, 
performing all 32 piano sonatas that he gave uh, he gave it as a recital in Berlin and he performed like all 32 of them over the course of like five or six days or, or something yeah. like that like from memory from mem- yeah it's yeah. just it, that it, is unheard it, of that's it's unheard hard of. to overstate the amount of it's it's hard to overstate just how much of a um a, a feat of of the human mind that is i mean yeah these are complicated pieces. There are 32 of them. Not only yeah. does he have them all memorized, he has them all under his fingers beautifully. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's performing. And, he, you know, not only... It's, it would be one thing if he could record them all from memory and, you know, if something went wrong, he could, like, take to it. Yeah. But, you know, he's <laughs> right. performing these at very high stakes. That's insane. Maybe, yeah. Anyway. But, yeah, so, yeah. Bear, so not only is he playing all of them brilliantly from memory... They're recorded live, and if you cherry-pick any one of the 32, like the 18th or 23rd or any of them, you cherry-pick any of them out, I mean, each one in itself is a remarkable performance mm-hmm. that you would just not even know unless you knew that it was being recorded in the midst of all the other ones. It just, on its own, each one could stand as a brilliant performance. I would get standing innovation. Yeah. He did that 32 times in a row. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Oh, and wait, is it... <laughs> When he does, um, it's the 21st piano sonata, is the Wallstein. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. the Wallstein sonata by Beethoven. So the master class he's teaching on 21st, it's the, it's the Jesus guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. The master class is with this, this guy who's a Palestinian named Jesus. Uh, yeah. Which is pretty epic. Yeah. And, and, and he's, uh, and he, he was like a carpenter too, or something. Oh, or yeah, like dad, yeah. Right? Or no, his, his dad was his like dad a carpenter. Is a carpenter yeah. He's from Nazareth. Oh right? yeah, is he? Yeah. Yeah, just like wow, is, is this guy actually Jesus? <laughs> yeah. No, that was the <laughs> second coming, and we all just missed it. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. And he's playing the Wallstein piano sonata very well. You know, yeah, and, as you would expect <laughs> for the Son of God. I was going to say, you know, I don't, I don't know if this will be too too technical or too much, you know, harping on the same topic, but, um, like, regarding the, the tempo relations. Oh, yeah. Um, the, yeah. The, that's what, that was our first side note we yeah, wanted to yeah. get back to. Um, yeah, I, I think I think it's, once you hear Beethoven play this way, it will ruin a lot of Beethoven performances for you. And, mm. and for that matter, I mean, um, Bach and, I, I think Bach is the other main person that I try to think of tempo relations with. Hmm. Um, and Mahler, but yeah. really with Beethoven, I, I think I think with I don't know about Mahler so much, but with Bach, I think there's generally a sense that to to play him um, to play him well is to is to play him you know upright and with a spine, with a sense of direction and and pulse. Yeah. I think everyone kind of gets that, but Beethoven, it seems like. Um, because he's, it, it, it's because, um, like you sort of mentioned this, but it, it's sort of because he's on this cusp between, you know, classical forms and, and romantic styles, um, where depending on your own personality, I think, um, you, you tend to lean towards a sort of one way of interpreting Beethoven or another. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of people um, really romanticize him. I, I would say over-romanticize him. Yeah. But that's because I think in my bones, I'm really a classicist. Um, <laughs> but... Um, yeah, I think I think you have this peculiar problem with Beethoven because he's like a cusp composer, and a lot of people play him with a lot of push and pull in the tempo, a lot of, you know, quote romantic style, 
Um, you really see this in the piano concertos where oh, the, orchest- the orchestra is, you know, the, the, the conductor is like conducting the orchestra and it sounds like a Beethoven symphony. But then as soon as the piano enters, you know, now it's like it's this wishy-washy thing and the tempo is completely out of the window and mm-hmm. it's hard to tell where you are. But when you hear people like Baron Boyne play or Glenn Gould does this yeah, really greatly with really nicely with his um, with his piano concertos. Yeah, um, where it's like it, it forms a sort of coherent vision, a, a coherent, um, like unified vision of this piece. And it's so pleasurable to listen to music played that way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's just organized sound at the end of the day. And when you hear it organized to like that level, when you, when you hear someone like Baron Boyne, who has really um, thought through every little detail of this um, sonata and organizes it and, and thinks of it at, at such a high level, um, it, it can really ruin a lot of like you know, other Beethoven performances who are played by pianists who are brilliant. Like when they, like, you know, people who would otherwise play like Chopin or Tchaikovsky piano concerto and sound absolutely wonderful on it. They take that same mentality into Beethoven and something is lost. And um, Barenboim really like ruined that kind of performance for me because now that I hear it his way, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, um, Glenn Gould, uh, in one of his, I mean, we can link to this in the show notes because I think it's a really great interview in, in uh, video. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interview he gave on CBC or something. But yeah, he's, the example he uses is, yeah, Beethoven's third piano concerto. And he plays it, he starts off playing it perfectly, magnificently, and you're like, wow, that's, he's, he's killing it. And he stops and says, and he's talking with the guy interviewing him, he says, yeah, that is unfortunately the way you hear most people play this concerto. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, he says, I think it's, I played it romantically. And he says, we're all used to the story of Beethoven being the mad genius who was going deaf and with all this emotion. I swear to you, Humphrey, that in my young life I have heard many such indulgences applied to this glorious and spineful music. Well, it didn't sound too indulgent to me, Glenn. What's wrong, what's wrong with that way of playing? That's, I take it you want to uh, uh, depict that as being... I think that's a violation of Beethoven's purpose, that, the way I played it just now. Yes, I was trying to uh, do a bad takeoff of many performances that I've heard at the opening of the third piano concerto. In what particular respect? In the respect that uh, the tempo that I set at the beginning, presumably the tempo that some Teutonic conductor would have passed on to me. Was let go immediately by soloist uh, whose role I was trying to take. Much slower. Almost twice as slow, yes, indeed. And uh, as such, the whole spine of the, of the music is, is lost. One, one no longer can feel a, a sense of backbone, a sense of propulsion to it. You know, yeah. and, and then he plays it the way he would play it. I mean, me personally, I definitely li- like that way more because it kind of, when you play Beethoven with that consistent tempo and that spine, that solid backbone, it really, that's not saying there's no more um, opportunities for expression and artistry. In the way that that unlocks, that kind of like grounds a firm foundation of tonality and, and, uh, motifs and ideas and now all of a sudden the two themes that seemed different now if they play at the same tempo all of a sudden you see the relationship that was not apparent beforehand whereas if you just sped up and slowed down a bunch you as a listener would not have drawn that connection so on the contrary that consistency of tempo the way beethoven would have liked it unlocks even more artistic potential and opportunities for expression 
Yeah, it's a matter of how like zoomed in you're looking at the at the music. I mean, mm-hmm. I think a, a lot of people hear music and play music really with like a magnifying lens, like on the particular phrase that they're playing. Yeah. Um, and for any given phrase, you can come up with any number of justifications to play it any number of ways. But the key is to find a way to play it that makes when you zoom out to, to view the entire piece. And when you get to Barenboim's level, you know, he forms a coherent vision of the 32 sonatas. Yeah, yeah. That is, that is coherent within his vision of the symphonies and the piano concertos as well. Yeah. So, you know, once you zoom out enough, you start being more, um, you know, sort of flipping things like, oh, I just think this phrase sounds better this way. Um, that may well be true if nothing else in the world existed but that phrase. But there is a certain beauty in, in a sort of body of work that really is coherent when you zoom out to the level of, you know, even thinking of like an entire composer's work or like the thrust of a composer's work. I don't know if that makes sense. But. No, it does. It does. And, you know, I like too how it's been referred to in the classical music world before that the well tempered clavier is like the Old Testament. Um, <laughs> The Well Tempered Clavier by Bach. Um, and then the Beethoven 32 piano sonatas are like the New Testament <laughs> um, yeah. for classical music. And I, I think that's, that's not wrong in, that's in a perfect, funny way. Yeah. 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 And the real question yeah. is, what's the Book of Mormon? <laughs> <laughs> I also do love Mauricio Pellini's interpretation of the Beethoven piano sonatas. His are phenomenal. Particularly and, the late sonatas. Yeah, his, his are really great. And what's cool, I mean, for listeners, what's cool about the, th- the 32 Beethoven sonatas, just like, um, just like all Beethoven's works, it really is like in Shakespeare, right? We say what's awesome and so cool and fascinating about fascinating about studying Shakespeare's studying not only the great works themselves but the development between them the development of a single human and the Beethoven piano sonatas are that way I I think in my opinion where you really do get the sense of Beethoven's early period his middle period his early middle period his middle late period and, and then his late period and then the final works he did and Beethoven's symphonies are phenomenal. His concertos are great. You know, of course, all that stuff is fantastic. His chamber music is really great too. But the piano sonatas, I think, are really, really the look into Beethoven that that I think we all deserve and would all enjoy diving into. And Beethoven was a pianist. He was one of the best pianists of his era. He was one of the best pianists in Europe at that time. So he was a pianist at heart. And I think his, as I've said before, if you have a question about anything in his symphonies or his violin concerto or anything. If you have any questions there, the answer can be found in the piano sonatas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You said that a few places before and I, I, I love that. I mean, that, that um, I think that that's a really great way of, of expressing the, the sort of feeling that I've always had of, you know, how the piano sonatas fit into um, the picture of Beethoven that we have. Hmm. Um, yeah. You know, I'm not sure how great of a comparison this is, but to, to sort of keep with the Shakespeare riff, which seems to be the theme, um, yeah, you yeah. Know, based on the last episode too. Um, you know, I, I kind of they're kind of like the the um, the histories, the Shakespeare histories, where mm, you know yeah. there there are things that are 
more dramatic, like the, the you know, especially like the major tragedies. Um, right. Like, you know, you have your Hamlets and your Othellos and your King Lears, um, and you have things that are more flippant, um, like the Comedy of Errors or um, Midsummer Night's Dream, stuff like that. But really, the, the thing that has it, the thing that has a little bit of everything, the thing that has, you know, the, you know, the tragedy, the comedy, the, the, the human element, the human psychology, the pathos, um, the bathos for that matter. Um, it's, and it's like, the, it's, in a way, it's like the, the least sexy thing of Shakespeare's output mm-hmm. are his histories, you know, like, yeah. um, um, uh, like Henry the Fourth, Part Two. Yeah, know? that's not sexy at all. <laughs> just like how Beethoven's Piano Sonata Number Seventeen may not be, mm-hmm. um, but there may be an answer in Beethoven Seventeen's Piano Sonata, like you said, yeah. um, to to something that's a lot sexier, like Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, that yeah. everyone knows is much more dramatic. That could be like you know the Hamlet or something, but there could be some there could be some questions in there that are actually you know the the root of the answer is in um, you know something that you really have to dig a little bit deeper to find, I think. Sure, sure. And uh, before I forget, I mean, our question, I mean, our idea of tempo in Beethoven, I can actually think of a really great example right now. That is his, his uh, the first movement of the very, very famous Moonlight Sonata. Yes. Right, so that's a piece of Beethoven that we all somehow agreed to play that at a consistent tempo. Like every performer will play that at a very consistent tempo. You know, if you think of that or imagine that that beautiful. I mean, it's overplayed, sure, but it's still such a beautiful piece of music and beautiful in a very eerily way, which is so Beethoven, and I love it so much. Imagine you know those chord arpeggios and that melody that just sits so beautifully and so nicely on top. Imagine that, but played over romantically, right? The way you would play Chopin. And we love Chopin. We're not dissing Chopin, just saying that's not the right way to play Beethoven. If you played that Moonlight Sonata, the first movement we all know, if you play that at a very, very varying tempo, that piece would completely lose its effect. Yeah. It would, right. it would become... It would, I mean, it's... It, it, it's already, it, like you say, it's overplayed. <laughs> but it would become, it would become a cliche. I think it would become, yeah, it would become like tedious and a, a sort of fake beauty that I don't think anyone would find um, the piece as captivating as they do. Yeah, right. It, it would, right. it would bring it down to earth. It would make it, 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 it's really, you know, now it's expressive the same way that everything else is expressive, <laughs> and you know. <laughs> And who cares about that, you know? Yeah, boring. Yeah. yeah. In general, whenever we talk about, you know, this kind of stuff and, you know, like, quote, the right way of playing something, um, I, I should always put the caveat, you know, I think the right way to play something is whatever you think the way to play it should be. Like, whatever you hear, the most valid expression is that you play whatever you hear. So when, when we say, I, I assume, I, I think you're probably on board with me as well. So when we say, like, the right way to play, we don't literally mean... If you play it any other way, you're wrong. It's just there's there's like another way to play it that is that is we think more beautiful and more um, true to the music, um, not because of anything that is dogmatic, but because we think there there are elements in the music that become more apparent when played this way. So um, 
I think it's really just that, that you know, there are a lot of good reasons to play it with a steady tempo. There are a lot of good reasons to play it this way. And a lot of times when people disagree, like you say, like you said about the student, it's really just, oh, I kind of like it this way. But there's not really the same level of, of thought behind it. Mm-hmm. And again, to iterate what Barenboim said, if it does come out that someone, that I hear someone, you know, playing something, playing some Beethoven sonata with a completely distorted sense of tempo, and they actually have a good reason to do it, and they can articulate it. And um, it sort of shows you another facet of Beethoven that was previously left unconsidered. Um, then, yeah, I, I would be the first one to say, as, as Baron Boehm says, chapeau. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. You know, that hasn't been the case so far that I've heard. It's, yeah. It's the caveat that I don't, I don't know if it needs to be said, but yeah. No, no, indeed. Totally agree. Um, yeah, that's very well put. Very well put. That's basically what I've been trying to say this, this whole episode. <laughs> um, it's interesting. Um, my go-to answer for a while, and maybe still, um, when someone would ask me what my favorite piece of music ever is, I would say the first movement of the Wallstein Sonata, Sonata Number no. 21 by Beethoven. Interesting. I just always have loved. I think that's the piece where Beethoven truly wrote a symphony for piano. Um, yeah, he got he got so many different colors out of the piano in just that one in that in that one piece, and it's and it's also just extraordinarily beautiful. The melodies are great. I mean, yeah, I, I just have always adored that piece, and I I mean, I love all the Beethoven sonatas, but that one in particular, I always had a soft spot for. Yeah. So the so the so the Waldstein sonata um, that is a that is a middle period sonata right yeah that's yeah. late-ish middle period yeah yeah so so to sort of um, to sort of put them parallel to to the symphonies um, oh you know God, like God. one and two are early three is sort of the beginning of of his middle period four is right, kind of right. a throwback. Um, yeah, 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 but then you know five. Uh, yeah. Does anyone ever play four? <laughs> like, I really like four. Really? <laughs> yeah, I really like four. It's definitely one of his underplayed symphonies. Um, yeah. Glenn Gould has, has a line that I think applies to so many things, but uh, I think it certainly applies to Beethoven 4, which is um, that it has charm out of all proportion to its craft. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so, so, so really, um, like I, I think of um, like 3, 5, and 7 are kind of the... Mm-hmm the epic middle period symphonies sure. and yeah. i think waldstein sort of I, th- I think waldstein really um goes goes in with those agreed, agree? agreed yeah yeah and same yeah what the rest of it is around i'm like the 23rd piano sonata is the passionata which yeah. 
yeah, it's really good. Yeah, so the Wallstein is the one Jesus plays in this master class. Yeah. Um, the Passionata is the one, um, the 23rd Piano Sonata, that's the one um, Long Long plays in the master class. Uh, yeah, yeah, so that's, that's around that period. Um, so, so my question to you was going to be, yes. um, sorry, um, yeah, my, my question to you was going to be, um, you know, this is kind of a, a, a stupid question, but it, are, is your no, is your favorite Beethoven period the middle period? No, it probably is. It probably yeah. is. Now, I've never thought about that until just now, but yeah, yeah probably is. Um, this is riffing on what I brought up earlier. I didn't mean to talk about it like this, but I really love, I mean, I love so many things about this middle period of Beethoven, but I really love the way Beethoven would, I mean, yeah, in so many of these middle period pieces, he uses a very simple rhythmic motive as the building block for the whole work. So the obvious example is Beethoven's fifth. Dun, 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 dun. Then, then those, those four notes. That's the building block for the whole fifth symphony, just those four notes. Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, at least the first movement, it, the building block is that rhythm, dum ba dum bum ba dum bum, that galloping. And yep. that comes up in so many different ways and mutations and and stuff in that all, all the way until I think the last all the way until the last measure of that first movement the Apassionata Sonata has that building block dum da dum dum ba bum bum ba bum Almost a slower version of the Seventh Symphony. Yeah. On, um, yeah, and then the Wallstein has that kind of that straight eighth pulse steady. Yeah, that um, that very straight throughness. I guess it's very Beethovenian Beethoven music. It's very straight throughness of that piece. Yeah. And yeah, I'm connecting these dots right now in my head as we're talking in real time. But yeah, I guess I do really like Beethoven's middle period. And when I think about the common characteristics his middle period has. Uh, you know, with all the pieces he wrote then, yeah, a lot of them are very rhythmically derived. Yeah. In addition to beautiful melodies and great harmony and just genius on paper. So <laughs> yeah, genius on, on, on display for all of us to admire. Yeah, as is so often the case with middle periods. So, well, so, so cards on the table, um, the, I think the middle period is actually my least favorite period. Interesting. Okay. Of, of Beethoven. Okay. Um, that you being like the said, early, early period, right? That's the, sorry? You like the early, early period, right? The, yeah, I actually... I, Symphony I, 1, <laughs> Piano yeah. Sonata 1. I'm such a hipster that I actually like Beethoven's Juvenalia. It's not even published. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can just get out. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everyone um, stands up and leaves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was our last listener. <laughs> 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 
Um, no, I mean, I, I say it's, it's my least favorite period of his. But that being said, I mean, Beethoven, after Bach, I probably like no, I, I, I don't think I listen to his, as, uh, any other composer as much as I listen to Beethoven. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I love all Beethoven. So that's not a knock on his middle period. Um, mm-hmm. But oh. I, I'll get to why maybe I, I don't like it yeah. as much as the others later. But um, I think it is the most Beethovenian period. Uh, is this so often oh, the case? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. As is so often the case with composers' um, you know, lives, yeah. um, there comes a point, um, like early on, you, know, you can really see their influences. So like in, mm-hmm. in early Beethoven, you can really hear Haydn. Yeah, um, sure. You know, sure. It is, it was is, his teacher, I think. Is he, that? Yeah, he he was he was um, his teacher for a while, um, so you can really hear like the classical roots, the humor, which Beethoven carries throughout. I mean, I think mm-hmm. even in his latest works, you can you can hear the classicism and you can hear yeah. you know the humor, but it's really on a it's really on apparent display, with not a lot of you know Beethovenian stuff in front of it in the mm-hmm. early in the early works. Um, and around the time of the middle period, you start to get you start to get all the all the good things that you associate with Beethoven, you know, in the middle period. Um, like you said, the the sort of the using of the rhythmic germ, the the straight throughness. I really like that term. I've never mm-hmm. heard it before, but oh, um, or maybe well, maybe I have, but I just have forgotten it. But in in any case, I really like it. Um, <laughs> yeah, you you get all that, and you know, like the the sort of the the um. um What's the word I'm looking for? The innovations of, of form really start oh, popping sure, up. Sure. Uh, yeah. So form I mean, mean the structure. Um, yeah, I mean like the you know the form the form of a of a sonata. You know like there, there's a the thing plot like, is a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What the, we call the plot of a yeah, novel or story exactly. is like the form of a piece. Yeah. Yeah. Structure. Um, he really starts messing with that in the middle period, and um, that also becomes a feature you know going forward. And then you know as you get into the late period, um, you. Um, you know, he, it's, it seems like, again, this, this happens with especially brilliant people, I think, all kinds of artists, composers, writers, etc. But I think as they get into the late periods, and I think the late string quartets are a good example of this, as are the late piano sonatas, mm-hmm. um, you can see that he is just, um, he has become like untethered from time, almost. Like, you know, there are moments when he's looking so far forward and there are moments when he's looking so far backwards. Um, he, he, you really, there are some moments in the late works of Beethoven where, um, you know, he stops being romantic. He stops being, like, even a late romantic composer. Like, there are moments that seem, like, utterly modern and there are moments where he's, like, sort of dipping back into the Renaissance. Um, but he, like, never ties it up. It's, it's, it's... Yeah. Yeah, like, there's no satisfying conclusion. There's no... It's not, it's, it's like, you know, he's just, he's a man out of time and he doesn't know how to, um, how to like wrap up the ideas. It's like he has like a few brilliant ideas that he like throws out there and then there's no satisfying wrap up to it. Um, it's funny, there would not be a satisfying wrap up for probably a hundred more years. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, it's so mind blowing when you look at a lot of the music theory innovations of the late piano sonatas. I mean, he introduces concepts like, uh, I mean, there's obviously the Boogie Woogie Sonata, which is basically jazz 100 years early. Yeah, yeah, we'll, def- um, we'll have to put a clip here, yeah. Yeah, the first time I heard it, I did not believe it was actually Beethoven. Yeah, same here.
to be no Beethoven could not have written this. This is <laughs> Scott Joplin. This is ragtime. This is also like, but a lot of the music theory innovations. I forget exactly which ones, but there's some elements of, oh yeah, like um, I forget which piano sonata, sonata it is, but he introduces the octatonic scale, right? Which is basically a way. Um, it's a scale where you divide the octave in perfect halves. So how you basically do it is you alternate between playing whole step, half step, whole step, half step, all the way up, up the scale. So you can either go whole step, half step, whole step, or you can start half step, whole step, half step, whole step. Yeah. Um, oh, that's a tongue twister. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> half step, whole step, half step. Uh, but yeah, it's a really cool, unique sound. But it's funny, it's in some of the, I forget which one, it's in one of the late Beethoven piano sonatas. And it's there, but then it dies, and it's never used again until the music of, Bar talk and Ravel in late WC. Like, this is yeah. just like he was, I don't want to say ahead of his time. I mean, but in a way, it's just, I mean, the musical innovations, almost like the music, I mean, forget the world, the music world, the classical music world wasn't really ready for. Yeah. And it's that point that Glenn Gould makes too, where he says, We, as a performer, back to the role of the performer playing as the interpreter, it is entirely possible knowing this now, having done our homework, our research, we know this, this one example of the octatonic scale with Beethoven, it is entirely possible that we as the performer know more about this piece than the composer did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a completely fascinating point. And um, I think that is from that germ, Glenn Gould, you know, goes on to justify, you know, a lot of things that he does that other people would call crazy, but um, I think if you make if you make the kind of intensive study of a composer that Glenn Gould makes made, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think it is entirely possible to to know more about a piece than than the composer did. Right, because Beethoven know. didn't know that that one idea he threw out there would be a pivotal music theory concept in early twentieth century music, but. Yeah there it is you know and so when you're playing that piano sonata knowing that you can be more artistic with it than Beethoven could have ever been yeah um I, I could be wrong but along similar lines isn't isn't there like a isn't there a piano sonata where there's a tone row there's a 12 tone row oh is there I I, I could I know be there's, wrong there's a quasi tone row in quasi-tone part of Mozart Mozart's 40th from okay Einstein lecture you might be thinking of Maybe, um, maybe we'll have to like find. We we'll have to like do a little bit of research yeah. and find it. We there. might actually have to do some re- yeah. <laughs> research. I know. Imagine that. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but yeah, no. Glenn Gould. Um, Glenn Gould is honored and revered for his Bach, but does Beethoven usually play second fiddle to his Bach interpretations? And I don't think it should. I think it should be pretty equal because Glenn Gould's Beethoven recordings, lectures, ideas, concepts were. Yeah, he he's one of the other great interpreters of Beethoven. Yeah. I, I've always thought. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I think after Bach, Glenn Gould's most recorded composer is Beethoven. So I think so. Yeah. yeah. One of the points he makes, what I think is really interesting, and we can link to this in the show notes. It's a, a really great like four minute lecture or four minute uh, pre lecture to him performing the Beethoven Tempest Sonata, which. Is that the 17th or the 18th? Always. I think 17. I think it's 17. Maybe yeah. I could be wrong, yeah. Yeah, it's it's around there. Um, uh, yeah, so basically, um, he's performing it live on American television. And the, the, the guy introducing him is a very young Alex Trebek. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is great. Um, 
uh, but anyway, so he's given like a five minute slot to say a few words on Beethoven. And I mean, he says, I think the greatest five minutes ever said on Beethoven, if you can just condense it to five minutes. He alludes to the two pieces he's playing on the program. One is the Tempest Sonata. And the other one, I believe, is a Fugue Variations, I believe, that Beethoven wrote. Or is it, a, is it I think it's a... Is or it... Theme and Variation. Anyway, he, he plays one of Beethoven's uh, Theme and Variations. So these two pieces by Beethoven. And, and he says, uh, you know, what's interesting about these pieces is that the theme and variations, which is, you know, a very classical honoring the tradition sort of classical music, right? I mean, it's very, very much a classical 18th century style piece. And then, you know, the Tempest Sonata, which is, we think, Beethoven being the innovator, right? You know, very groundbreaking sort of piece of music for its time. It's funny, the Tempest Sonata, which we all would agree is the voice of a more advanced, more developed Beethoven, was written first. And so the point Glenn Gould gets to is that Beethoven is sort of a living metaphor for the creative condition that at once he honors the past and he, he's painstakingly sometimes uh, critical and specific about musical grammar and having you know, sonata form and rondo form be measure for measure exactly how it should be in the books and how it was established by Mozart and the classicalists. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we have Beethoven, this innovator, this forward looker that was pushing down every musical boundary that was in front of him. Glenn Gould then goes on to say, this isn't unique to Beethoven. You know, in, inside any creative person or artist, there's an inventor at odds with a museum curator and any advancement in art comes at the momentary gain of one at the expense of the other. Mm-hmm. But the thing with Beethoven is that this conflict, the struggle, unlike most artists, most composers, it's not tucked away in the side, in the, the skeleton in the closet. It is the very surface of the music, and Beethoven lets us see it happen. I mean, that is well said. <laughs> I, I don't have anything to add to that. That is, that is pitch perfect, I would say, yeah. Yeah, no, that is, yeah. that is really well said. Um, and, and then he, and then he goes on to play the Tempest Sonata beautifully <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean, that, that's really a case for, for why, um, there's so much to be gained from, you know, not just studying a single piece or even just a set of pieces, but actually just sort of studying, you know, the entire body of work of a composer and studying the mm-hmm. sort of arc of progress. Yeah. Um, you know, you see it everywhere. I mean, you even see it in the symphonies. We sort of talked about it before, but yeah, in, in the symphonies, like one and two are very classical. Three is like mm-hmm. violently disruptive. Four goes back to being the sort of serene, um, almost, you know, cla- like neoclassical, not neoclassical, but um, just, uh, you know, it's, it's very calm again. It's calm and backwards looking. And then from mm-hmm. then you sort of alternate basically. Five again, violently disruptive. Six you know, it's almost a Renaissance symphony, if you really, yeah, yeah like we've talked about, if, if, you know, when Glenn Gould plays it on the piano, they're, it's so backwards looking in some ways. Um, yeah, yeah. And then seven, again, it's, it's so innovative. And then eight looks back, and nine, you know, the ultimate, just mm-hmm. um, to, to the point of adding a chorus. Um, yeah, yeah, right. But, you know, it, yeah, it's completely fascinating. You can't, um, you can't turn your eyes away because, because yeah, it, it's like we were saying, you know, it, he never... He never really, like, no one ever really does have closure on on the on this paradox. But um, Beethoven, you know, he did it in the most interesting way. He 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 lived that paradox for everyone to see or everyone to hear. And one of the things with Beethoven that I don't think 
he gets enough credit or recognition for and maybe we can argue if he deserves it but he really is the one composer i mean the only one i can think of that is unclassifiable right i mean he's really is not a romantic composer of the 1800s he's not a classical composer of the 1700s he's the one composer that doesn't fit into either or any musical period or artistic period and I don't know. I just still think because, yeah, there's just too many exceptions either way to make one argument or the other. That's true. That's true. I mean, I I would posit I would posit Bach as another one who really doesn't because there's so much in, you know, by the time Bach was composing the Baroque, the Baroque idiom was already in full swing. And there's not that much of a relationship between Vivaldi and Handel and Bach, I think. I think mm. that there's some aspects of Bach that are so, um, like he. I think he really he really has more to do with the sort of old Renaissance masters, interesting um, than than yeah, with other huh, like okay. Baroque contemporaries. Okay. But then you know he he at the same time he's, he's employing. He studied with Gabrielli and stuff, and uh, he studied with Gabrielli and yeah, things yeah. in Venice. Yeah, so yeah, that makes sense. Okay, and and um, yeah, and, and at the same time he's employing sort of. Um, these these harmonies that are that you know that you don't see cropping up again for you know 100 years 150 years um, yeah that's so true. Yeah. yeah i, I think but I, I think beethoven is a more clear-cut he's he's more clear-cut someone that you can't classify yeah um, yeah <laughs> he's easier to classify as someone that you can't classify yeah <laughs> but yeah. yeah again we're so used to the story but it just always bears repeating yeah he went deaf like that's <laughs> pretty fucking crazy <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. his music just got more intense, more complicated, more intrinsic, more um, beautiful, more progressive, you know, as as he went on, even though he sawed, the, he sawed the legs off his piano so he could just sit it on his apartment floor and just feel the vibrations, which is crazy. Yeah. No, it's, it's completely fascinating. So it's funny, I brought up Daniel Barenboim. Um, the reason I brought up Barenboim wasn't anything to do with Beethoven, actually. Oh, wow. That's... <laughs> This is the um, holiday special all over again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Our, our legendary Nutcracker tangent in April, whenever that was. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no. Uh, even though, is there anything more we, we want to say in Beethoven? I just. Um, oh, I'm sure there is, but we can do it I'm later. Sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm sure Beethoven will come up again. Yeah. Oh, it's also worth saying the last piece Bernstein ever conducted. The last piece of music Bernstein ever conducted was Beethoven Seven. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. At Tanglewood. Yeah. Oh, I mean, okay. Should we talk about it? Should we talk about it? Is it going to be what I think you're going to talk about? Beethoven 250. I suppose that now would be the time to do it. <laughs> hashtag Beethoven 250. <laughs> is, that, is that hashtag still active now that, you know, Corona has killed it? I mean, I think I tweeted, like, I blame Beethoven 250. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You did. You did say that. Um, uh, yeah, so, I mean, for those who don't know, uh, it's, what, the this year's the 250th birthday, Beethoven? Or the death right? day, one or the death other. Death day, I, I don't know, I don't care. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, but anyway, so all these, I mean, we, we were talking about this a while ago. You know, there's all these Beethoven 250 concerts and thing, and thing, you know, like, oh, like, the San Francisco Symphony here in town announced a Beethoven series concert for Beethoven 250 and and you had some 
words to say <laughs> about about such marketing initiatives. <laughs> yes, I, I remember. I, I I don't remember what I said, but I do remember I had a lot to say, which seems to be a permanent state of affairs with me. <laughs> well, basically, the point you made <laughs> is uh, <laughs> is okay. Yeah. So, what pieces are you guys playing? Oh, just the standard Beethoven pieces you guys play it every year. Right? Yeah, Beethoven's Ninth, Beethoven's, fifth, which are as we've just stated, brilliant pieces of music. But instead of just doing what you always do, how cool would it be to play maybe Beethoven's le- um, lesser-known pieces or some of the pieces that were kind of inspiration to Beethoven or some of the pieces of Haydn that Beethoven uses inspiration, as we were saying, for like his first symphony and things. Like That'd be a cool take on Beethoven. Or maybe Beethoven's symphony or, or his piano sonatas, maybe a brand-new arrangement of the Wallstein sonata for orchestra. Yeah, yeah. That'd be super cool. That'd be awesome, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I forget. I mean, this may have been right before we started this podcast where we were talking. I think so. Yeah, I think yeah. we. I think it was after we were catching up on Zoom. We, we talked, hey, yeah. we start a podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like back in like March. Yeah. yeah, and we were just talking about how hilarious it is that, you know, every orchestra pretty much is, is doing this. So this isn't to call anyone out. But, um, you know, it's just hilarious how they're like, you know, join us for our, our, our Beethoven 250th celebration. We will be playing Beethoven 5. And, <laughs> yeah, and Beethoven right, right. seven is like okay, great. You know, maybe, yeah. like when when did you not like? When's the last time an orchestra went um, an entire season without playing one of the major, uh, pretty much all of the major Beethoven symphonies? It's it's right. un, unreal. Or like Beethoven Violin Concerto or something. Like right, that. right. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't even see something like the Choral Fantasy being programmed, which is yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, which is or, even more obscure, but. But yeah, I mean, how cool would it be if, if um, you know, we don't have to go as extreme as putting a moratorium on standard Beethoven performances, but I think that would be a pretty cool idea. I don't know. I don't remember if I went this far when oh, we were talking uh, about it, but you could, you could just put a, put a moratorium on, you know, it's Beethoven's 250th birthday slash death day, don't remember, um, you know, to celebrate, you are not allowed to play Beethoven as Beethoven is written anymore we do that enough either play a piece that no one it may, maybe maybe the an allowance can be made in the in the case of pieces that are rarely rarely performed mm-hmm. um but for the most part what if we just stopped playing beethoven 7 for a year and instead um programmed things like um, beethoven 7 um played on piano or arranged for um uh jazz trio i don't know if that could be yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, like let's let's mess with it. Let's let's uh, you know, or like let's commission composers to um, to write new music that that is sort of riffing on on uh, you know some some of the classic Beethoven works that we know and love. Yeah, um, exactly. Or just you know, or just riff on Beethoven generally. It doesn't have to be you know like a. It doesn't have to be as as obvious as um, sort of riff on Beethoven five or something like that. But um, you know, like I think of um, like Max Richter's. Um, the the Vivaldi reconstructed the Four Seasons reconstructed you know yes yes um, you know great. You could do something something like that the the possibilities are literally endless yeah you, you can there's do, so much yeah. there's you so can much do can be done. so much that's innovative and never been heard before um, you know which I think would be true to the spirit of Beethoven it there would, you go yeah, it yes. would be yeah it would be it would be at once honoring the past it would be honoring tradition in a in an active lively way by by honoring your roots and honoring, you know, um, 
you know, the, the old music that we know and love, but innovating on it and, and sort of riffing on it in ways that have never been heard before and being true, yeah, like, like, you, like you were saying, you know, being true to both the, the inventor and the, muse- the museum creator, um, mm-hmm. curator. Uh, as it stands right now, it seems like most institutions are, are perfectly content with being um, sim- simply museum curators. I, I think it's such mm. a shame. And to put on top of all of that, um, you know, the sort of crass marketing ploy of Beethoven <laughs> 250, as if Beethoven 249 were any different, as if not every year of being a musician is a year that we have to give thanks to someone as who's such a cornerstone to, to everything that we do here as Beethoven. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it is, it's, it's galling. It's egregious. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't sign me up. Take me off. <laughs> yeah, so that conversation we had, which was basically what we've been talking about for the past two minutes or so, this was the conversation we had that was the inspiration that we should start a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so we should do a Beethoven. Actually, this probably is our Beethoven 250 special. <laughs> yeah, this, yeah, let's call it. Yeah. The, the, this is it, baby. This is our Beethoven is 250 special, yeah. Hashtag Beethoven 250. Hashtag Beethoven 250. We'll, we'll, we'll revive it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> this is it. This is it. Um, yeah. I mean, okay, it's not but, much, but at least it's not the, you know, the millionth performance of Beethoven 7. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. I still stand by what I originally said and then said again. I did not bring up Daniel Barenboim to talk about Beethoven. <laughs> <laughs> oh god um and yet here uh, we are yeah, this, yeah so okay so the reason i brought up daniel barenborn <laughs> um was uh i stumbled you asked me what i was listening to lately <laughs> and i stumbled across a video on youtube i think i don't think it's a new video i think it's from a few years ago but it's so cool so beethoven uh, beethoven uh, barenborn <laughs> being from Argentina, it's a cool video of him playing tango on the piano at a very small, like, reception, it looks like. I don't think it's even out of tango club. It's just, it looks like a place where they're dedicating a new piano or dedicating a new little performing arts center in Argentina. But anyway, yeah, he's playing, I think the piece he's playing is one of the great tangos. It's um, Adios Muchachos. <laughs> um, cool. And it's, it's just so cool because this is a guy that I idolize his recordings his teachings his conducting for so long but to hear him play tango from the country he was from and him just being just sitting down just laying laying it down on the piano just so awesome and he gets it he nails it perfectly because he's improvising like half of it he knows the melody but what he's playing is just him riffing on the melody and and improvising the accompaniment and the rhythms and the way he in tango, you kind of, there's a straight throughness, again, our word for today, <laughs> our word for this episode. Yeah, um, but yeah, he kind of plays with the rhythm and the left hand a lot of times just, just barely drags behind the right hand. The harmony just barely drags behind the melody of the right hand. And almost the way a dancer is always anticipating the beat, which inevitably makes the music sound a little bit behind in a very cool way. Yeah. And you yeah, kind of it, hear it again, in, when you when you hear the Vienna Symphony play waltzes, you exactly, the exactly. Yeah. Instead of you know, dun 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 dun, dun like a waltz, it's more of a dun 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 dun, dun, dun yeah. right? You know, dun, very dun, 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 dun. yeah. This beat two yeah. is anticipated ever so slightly. Exactly, exactly. So just the way a Viennese waltz is is uh, it's supposed to be played. The way he plays tango is 
is perfectly and you can actually kind of see him lifting his hand a bit higher his left hand a bit higher from the piano to almost which again is technically wrong technique but he can more than get away with it <laughs> um but just to remind himself to just not rush the left hand if anything slow it down a tiny bit and uh, yeah so anyway it, it was just funny because i'm used to seeing him conduct at carnegie hall and you know perform legendary performances of the Beethoven sonatas or something, but to see him play for just a crowd of 20 people in a very small room on an upright piano, him playing the music he grew up with, uh, so cool. just goes to show what I what I always keep thinking is just that the the, the, the greatest musicians uh, are just um, they're just you know people who simply love sound and love sharing it with people there's no mm-hmm. there's no pretension you know when, when you get to people of, of the sort of world-class stature as Daniel Barenboim they're no they're not you know there's no pretension of like oh this isn't this isn't Carnegie Hall. Like I only do Carnegie Hall, or I only do right. like I only do like the most prestigious things in the most prestigious places. It's just, you know, all, all music is music, and um, all audiences are are um, the best audience is the one that you have right now. And yeah, um, right. And you know, there, there's a sort of um, there's a there's a real down to earthness to to the greatest musicians. Yeah, and and what's cool too is um when he was when he sat down to play that piece. So I, I don't think he was. I, th- I think what happened. He, he was not planning on even. He was not planning on even playing the piano this night. It was a dedication mm. ceremony and stuff. But they asked him to just you know oh this is, we have a brand new piano now here. It's an upright piano. Can you play something for us? And as I would, I'm sure everyone there did as well. I'd expect him to play again Beethoven, Chopin, Liszt, Mozart. And the fact he sits down and he gets to play whatever he wants, right? <laughs> Which is not usually the case in public, at least when he's performing. It's usually a concert program, right? But yeah. he can actually perform in public anything he wants. I just love that he plays tango. That is wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have to. Yeah, I, I don't think I've seen this video, but I should, or maybe I have. It sounds vaguely familiar, but I don't. I don't have like a great memory of it. Yeah, um, we'll put it down yeah, we'll, in the show we'll, notes too. I'll, yeah. yeah, I'll check it out, and we'll put it in the show notes for sure. Yeah. Well, <laughs> oh my gosh, Rita. <laughs> I'm like, I'm exhausted. Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty tired. What time is it? Time to get a watch. Time to get a watch, I guess so.